We are in Jonah chapter 3 today. And just to remind you of what's going on, uh, Jonah is a prophet. Uh, A prophet is somebody who is sent by God. God's word is put in his mouth. And he's commissioned to speak God's word to, you know, whatever intended audience God is sending him to. Uh, Prophets, typically, they speak words of hope and mercy to his people. Historically, that that is the people of Israel, uh, particularly in Jonah's day, who's preaching sometime in the 8th century BC. Sometimes the word that the prophet delivers is very hopeful. It's very bright, uh, telling of a glorious future, uh, a, a glad time where people will be reunited with God. But sometimes the prophet's message is very dark. It sounds very bleak. Um, they are reminders, they are warnings that God is holy, that he's just, that he won't forever allow evil to exist, that one day judgment will come. In the book of Jonah, we find that Jonah is not sent to God's covenant people, uh, to, to Israel. Rather, he's sent far to the north and to the east to the dreaded and hate, hated city of Nineveh, which is the capital of the very wicked Assyrian Empire. Jonah is commanded in chapter 1 to go and preach God's word to this people, a message that is fundamentally a message of mercy. He's commissioned to go to those people who are very far away from God, who have no interest in God. But Jonah, the prophet, he runs from this. He doesn't fulfill his God-given task. But God is a pursuing God. In his mercy, he reaches out to all kinds of people. Uh, Over and over again, we see God reaching out to his wayward people, Israel. But he also pursues violent and cruel Nineveh. And in Jonah, we find him also pursuing rebellious and hard-hearted Jonah. And now in chapter 3, we find Jonah being given a second chance, a second crack at being a prophet, at delivering God's word to Nineveh. Alistair. So Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us again. Father, thank you for this word that you've given to us. Uh, just just a, a remarkable thing to see happening in a city um, that seemed so opposed to you in every way, on every level. To hear how your message of mercy uh, can come 
and transform any heart. Father, we pray that our hearts would be open to you now as we listen, as we learn, as our sin is being chipped away, as we're being renewed by this word. We pray that you'd have your work done in us. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Don't know if any of you are familiar with the book, Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. Became a very popular musical and a movie and then a movie based on the musical. Uh, if you're familiar with it at all, uh, it uh, takes place, I think, during the French Revolution, if I'm not too mistaken. And it concerns uh, several characters, but prominent among them is a man named Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean, we find him at the beginning of the novel, um, released from prison. He had spent some time in prison because of a, a burglary that he'd been involved in. And after his release, I mean, it's not easy being released from prison at this time, he is taken indoors and he's, he's shown hospitality by a very kind churchman, a bishop, actually. But old habits die hard for Valjean. Uh, late in the night, he gets up, sneaks around the house, taking whatever silver he finds, and then flees. Unfortunately for Valjean, or as we'll see, fortunately for him, he's caught red-handed. The police find him, the gendarmes, or however you want to say it, and they bring him back to the bishop's house with, with his sack filled with stolen silver. But then something really unexpected happens. The bishop, awake in his nightgown, he tells the police that the silver was a gift that he had given to Valjean. Uh, the bishop, he turns and he goes to the table and he, he, he takes hold of two of the most prized possessions in the home, some of the, the greatest valuables in the home, two silver candlesticks. And he offers them to Valjean. Uh, Valjean looks in awe and amazement as, as the bishop says, my friend, before you go, here are the candlesticks. Take them too. The police are confused. They don't know exactly what's going on, but they're satisfied and so they leave. And then the bishop takes hold of Valjean, maybe from the shirt or the scruff of the neck. And he says, do not forget ever that you promised me to use this silver to become an honest man. Valjean, incidentally, hadn't made that promise, but the bishop is making it so that Valjean has made that promise. Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. It is your soul I am buying for you. I withdraw it from dark thoughts and from the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. Now, this act of unmerited generosity and mercy from the bishop, it, it's a salvation for Valjean. It rescues him not only immediately from prison, but from just a life of continued robberies and runnings. His character, his deeds from this moment on in the novel are, are totally transformed by this powerful act of grace from the bishop. This is, a, this is a moving picture, we find, of the transformative power of God's mercy. When, when God turns his mercy onto a person, shows him a kindness that that person didn't deserve, and in fact deserved the very opposite, deserved judgment and punishment, when that mercy lands uh, on a person, when it is received by faith, it's intended to tra transform that person, to change them from the ground up. Uh, we think, as we read through Jonah, that that's what we're going to see from Jonah. If you remember from chapters 1 and 2, we meet Jonah, who's a bit of a, as we described to our kids, he's a bit of a stinker, right? 
he has been tasked by God to do something very particular, and yet in chapter one, he runs from it. God reaches out to him. He rescues him, does some amazing things. Like Valjean, Jonah's been caught red-handed. He's about to be destroyed, but God, in his grace and his kindness, he brings Jonah back. If you remember from chapter two, there's this beautiful psalm that that Jonah um, uh, prays to God. And what we hope in chapter three is that we'll meet a totally reformed character. But it's not quite that way. In fact, what we're shocked to find as we read through chapter three, that it is Nineveh. It's the people of Nineveh, from the king down to the lowest, this barbarous, wicked city that is totally transformed by the mercy of God. But God's chosen prophet, Jonah, who's a member of the covenant people of Israel, he misses out. Uh, God's mercy hasn't reformed him fully, at least not yet. We'll see more of that next week in in chapter 4. But what we're going to be doing this afternoon is we're going to be looking at uh, four things that the transformative mercy of God does to us when it lands on us and we receive it by faith. Four marks that shows that God's mercy has hit us right. Before we do that, I just want us to grasp the text. I want you to look at the text, look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 3. If you're familiar with the story of Jonah, if you can remember from a few weeks ago, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 3 mirror almost perfectly chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, where God's word comes to Jonah and he gives him instructions. But this time, uh, instead of running away and staying silent, Jonah goes to Nineveh. He speaks the word of the Lord that's been given to him. This is Jonah's do-over. Now, Nineveh, we find in chapter 3, is huge. It's great not only because of its great evil, but because of its immense size. It is a huge place. And somewhere near the beginning of chapter 3, we find Jonah on the outskirts. He's in the burbs of of the GNA, the the greater Nineveh area. And it takes about a a day's journey for him to travel into the heart of the dark city. His message wasn't primarily for the outskirts, but it was for the center, for where the power lie, where where the government seemed to be. And what is the word? What's the message that God put into Jonah's mouth to deliver? Look at verse 4. It's very simple. It's eight words. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, in week one, what we said of this message, whatever else we might say about it, is that it's fundamentally a message of mercy. It's It's a message of mercy that he's being given. And Jonah knows this. Again, we'll see this next week more. Jonah understands God's character. He understands uh, the game that God is playing. He knows that God's character is merciful and generous. He is gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He is willing to relent from the disaster he promises. Um, Jonah knew that one of the great reasons he had been sent to deliver this message was because God was eager to give Ninevites, these dreaded people, the chance to repent. One of the reasons that God reveals his wrath, one of the reasons that he tells people that the wages of sin is death and destruction uh, is so that he can offer an opportunity for repentance and turning to him. Um, Just as, you know, if you have a friend who is willing to tell you that your drinking or your selfishness or, or, you know, your your lack of love will destroy you eventually, that is a a message of mercy given to you. And, And so is this message, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. This is a merciful word, but I don't want you to miss that it's also a hard word. This message that Jonah delivers is a hard word. It is a hard mercy that's being extended to Nineveh. Jonah's telling them, you're going to be wiped out. 
Everybody in this city. 40 days. The clock is starting. Nineveh, you are so evil that God in his holiness will bring destruction uh, and, and death on a massive scale here. And he means it. He's not winking. It, it is true. And you don't have to look far into, into the history of God's dealing with the world to see that he has done this before. If you remember back in Genesis, the twin cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, in the days of Abraham, these were, these were cities that were leveled because of their sin and evil. Uh, sulfur and fire fell from heaven, consumed these cities completely until there was nothing left. Not only that, but God commanded the complete destruction, the leveling of several cities during the conquest of the land of Canaan. This is in the days of Joshua. In verse 9, we see that God isn't indifferent about the evil of cities. He, in fact, has, has a fierce anger towards cities and nations that make a practice of evil and cruelty. Again, I mentioned it before, but uh, the empire of Assyria and Nineveh, they have a historical reputation uh, for being barbarous and vile and cruel uh, against surrounding nations, against those nations that they, that they took over. And because God is just, because he's holy, because he's filled with love, he cares about the innocent. He won't tolerate this kind of evil lasting forever. Because he's good, he will finally act on behalf of the innocent and the poor and defenseless. If you are, if you are poor and defenseless and you are being persecuted by the Assyrians and being subjected to all kinds of cruelty, this message is actually really good news. You love hearing the message of Jonah, right? But if you're the Ninevites, this is a hard word. Uh, it's a word of doom to you. Um, but while it is a hard word, again, remember, it is a merciful word. They're being warned. It's heavy and it's serious, but it is a mercy. I want you to know that often when we think of, of God leveling cities and, and bringing judgment uh, against evil people, we sometimes relegate that to, to Old Testament prophet types. Like Jonah, he's a bit extreme. Uh, things have changed a little bit with Jesus. But if you're familiar with the Gospels, that's actually not the reality. Jesus spoke tender words of mercy, of course, but he also constantly spoke about coming judgment against people and cities. Um, hell is this New Testament picture that Jesus uh, over and over brings up to speak of the coming judgment and justice of God against sin and evil. This is the ultimate picture of God's justice. Uh, hell to come, uh, where the judgments of of Nineveh and Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities uh, in Canaan. These were just examples pointing to this final judgment. One writer notes that Jesus talks about hell more than he talks about heaven. He describes hell more vividly. There's no denying that Jesus knew, believed, and warned against the absolute reality of hell, of coming judgment. I recognize that, that, that no one really likes to talk about coming judgment of destruction on this kind of scale. We, we blush a little bit. And we may find comfort, I think, as we think about it, to remind ourselves of, of, of the character of God, of the character of Jesus Christ who spoke about this, that, that he is holy, that is, he is morally perfect. There's no shade of injustice in him. So whatever this disaster that's coming to, to Nineveh in 40 days, whatever it will look like, whatever hell and God's final punishment against sin and rebellion, whatever it will be, we can have confidence in God's holy character. That's our comfort in this, uh, that his judgment will be a holy judgment, that he himself is not cruel, 
that he is not unjust. He's not unfair in any way whatsoever. Whatever the judgment will be, whatever hell is like, it'll be right. It will be fitting. It'll be proportional. It'll be measured. It will be a good judgment. No one in Nineveh, no one in hell will ultimately be able to say, God, that's unfair. You have done wrong. God is holy, and that ought to be a comfort to his people. And so this word that, that Jonah is bringing to Nineveh it is a mercy, but it is a hard mercy. It is unyielding. It's firm. It's serious. Imagine being tasked with a similar duty by God himself to, to go down to Spring Garden or to go to the Grand Parade and preach a message of, ju- of judgment. Yet 40 days in Halifax will be overthrown. Imagine the scene you'd make, like the, the stir that you would cause, uh, the way that you would be mocked and reviled, probably not just by non-Christians, I bet Christians would join in that as well, the curses people would hurl at you, the violence you might face, you, you'd maybe be arrested depending on how you conducted yourself or disturbing the peace. Canadians, I number myself among us, like we would rather say anything than a hard word. We don't want to upset the neighbors. We don't want to be perceived as being intolerant or bigoted or narrow-minded or judgmental. Jonah isn't a Canadian, as far as I know, but he can't be too comfortable declaring this message in all places, uh, Nineveh declaring this message. Again, Nineveh the cruel, Nineveh the wicked. But what happens when Jonah stands in the center of this notoriously evil city and declares these eight words from God. What happens? Look at verse five. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And down verses eight through nine, this proclamation that comes from the king, comes from the highest levels of government, the nobles. Let man and beast call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. What happens when Jonah speaks these very hard words of mercy? Repentance, humility, change lives on a massive scale. From the king on his throne to the slave in the street to the, you know, the chicken and the cow in, their, in, the, in the barn. These hard words make soft hearts. These very hard words make soft hearts. And we all know that there are many times when the prophets came and they delivered very hard words that soft hearts weren't made, right? Hearts maybe just got harder. The story of Jean Valjean, it's it's heartwarming, it's encouraging, but, but all of us know that there are criminals who are shown mercy, given second chances, and they use that mercy and they use those second chances to just continue in a life of crime. But here we see a miracle happening in a miracle of God's kindness and his mercy being accepted and received by faith, these cruel, oppressive, violent people, they are softened. And what we, what we find described in Jonah chapter 3 is just an amazing picture of what happens when God's mercy, mercy does its work in us. When hard mercy hits us, lands on target, uh, it doesn't further harden us, but softens us, what happens? Well, because God's mercy is transformative, we are changed by it. And these are four marks that we see. First, we believe God. It's the first mark that God's mercy has hit its target. We believe God. Look at verse 5, right? Just very simply, Jonah preached and they believed. 
We go from not believing God's words to believing God's words. God's words of judgment uh, one moment are silly, they're irrelevant, they're unimportant, and now they're accurate, they're vital, they're true, they're believable. The Assyrians, they, they worshiped a pantheon of gods, not the God of Israel. They worshiped the, the chief god of Sur and the moon god and the goddess of war and love. But now what Jonah uh, says to them, uh, God's coming judgment against their sin, against their evil, um, they believe this word now. They put aside other words and they believe this one. How do you know if God's mercy has hit you in the way it's intended to? Uh, if, if he is showing you the kind of mercy that is transformative. This is what happens. You believe him. Uh, reading the scriptures, hearing the word preached, it's no longer just like something that's interesting that you know, happens once a week or so. Uh, when I'm standing here, when you're reading your Bible, this is a word that your life is built on, something that you believe in your bones. Second, we're humbled. We see this in the Ninevites when they call a fast, which is explained neither eating food nor taking in water. They, they refuse the comfort that food brings because they are undone. Uh, they also take off their comfy clothes. They put on sackcloth. It's a very uncomfortable, rough material. The king himself, uh, who's acquainted with luxury, he takes off his royal robes and he wears these scratchy, ill-fitting sackcloth uh, clothes and he sits in ashes. These are all uh, uh, ancient practices of humility, of debasement, showing that their pride is totally gone. Uh, they're, they're mourning. Now that they believe that God's word is true, that God is true, that his judgment is fair, they're undone. Being truly humbled by God's mercy, it means that you stop trying to justify yourself and and thinking to yourself, you're a pretty decent person. You give up thinking that way. You stop making excuses uh, for the good things that you fail to do. Uh, You you, you stop uh, minimizing the wrong things that you knowingly commit. A humbled person admits that they're not an innocent party before the cruel uh, judgment of God. God isn't picking on them in some way, but rather they admit that they're enemy combatants, that they, that they do evil willingly, that they fight against God's good work in this world. But when God's mercy hits us, uh, we lay down our arms. We're humbled. This, this, this move of humility, I mean, this is one of the most significant moves that we see in Scripture, people going, going from from proud people to humble people. This is the most essential step, perhaps. This is very hard for, for people in the church who, who are growing in hypocrisy to do, to admit their sin. We want to believe, we want to display that we are better people than we actually are. And so it just becomes a show. We're not willing to say who we really are. We're not willing to be humbled. But God's transformative mercy, when it hits us, it makes us humble, truly humble. So we believe God. We are humbled. And third, we call out to God. After we're being humbled by God, seeing ourselves as we truly are, we turn to him and we ask for his mercy. That's what the king of Nineveh does. That's what he tells all the people to, even tells the animals to do. I don't know how the animals do this, but they are alongside of the the citizens of Nineveh called to Call out mightily to God in verse 8. Only humble people know that they need mercy. Only those who know they need mercy are willing to call out to God. Last week, that was kind of the the structure of, of the sermon. When you're in distress, call out to God. 
because salvation belongs to the Lord. Uh, this is a theme in Jesus's uh, uh, teachings. In, in one of his parables, he, he tells the story of an indebted servant who comes before his master owing an unthinkable sum, millions upon millions of dollars, something that there's no way he could pay for in a lifetime. But the bill is up. It's time to pay. And what is this impoverished, exposed servant? What, what is his only recourse in that moment? He falls to his knees and he pleads for mercy. And that's what happens when God's mercy transforms us. We cry out to him for mercy. It is to him that we owe this incredible debt, and it is from him alone that we can receive forgiveness. When God's mercy hits us, um, we pray that prayer of confession, which we did earlier, and we say it from the heart. We don't just repeat it unthinkingly, regurgitate these words that are on the page, but we understand them to be our prayers, something that is very true of us. We call out to God. And so... We are to believe God's word. We're to be humbled by it. We're to call out to God himself. And finally, when God's mercy transforms us in the way it's intended to, we turn from our sin. That's the fourth one. We turn from our sin. That's in uh, chapter uh, three, verse eight. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that in his hands. Violence was the sin of Nineveh. It was what they were to cease from, to turn from. Uh, they turned from the wrong that they knew they were doing. They didn't repent from sin in general, but their sin in particular, the particular things they were doing that they knew were wrong, the particular goods that they were refusing to do. When God's mercy transforms us, we turn away from actual sin. For you, it may not be violence and oppression. It may be porn. It may be sexual sin. It may be lust. It may be gossip or slander or speaking poorly about people who aren't present. It could be laziness. It could be a gluttonous grabbing after uh, good food and good comfort. True repentance not only turns to God for mercy, but it turns away from actual sin, particular sin. Now, the story of the Ninevites, it's really the story of every person who has walked the earth. Uh, the Bible has extremely hard and heavy words of mercy about the broadness and the scope and the invasiveness and the power and the consequences of our sin. You and every person that has ever lived has sinned. You and every person that has ever lived eventually must face the judgments of God. And this isn't something that we can just walk back by being really sorry about. Think about it. Once your evil is done, I mean, it's done. It's out there, right? Uh, you can't undo it. Uh, judgment is something that is, that is promised as a result. You may believe God. You may afterwards be humbled by your sin, call, call it to God for mercy. You might even turn from, from doing new sin, but you can't undo what you've done. You can't change who you are. The, the, the system of, of faith that we find in the scriptures, it's not a system of karma or, or like an ethical algebra where two good deeds outbalance a bad deed. The Ninevites don't expect God to relent from the disaster he's going to bring on them. I don't know if you noticed that in, in verse 9. It's great. It's just kind of like a shrug of the shoulders. Who knows, right? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. They actually, they have no idea if humbling themselves will work. 
But this is, this is the glorious thing when we look at the scriptures, is the Ninevites don't know who God is. They, they don't really know what he's like yet. They don't know the God of Jonah fully. They don't know that, that forgiving, humbled sinners is God's great delight. He loves to offer forgiveness to them. Look at verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God loves to give his grace and forgiveness to humble people. He loves doing it. Who is God? What is he like? God reveals himself to us uh, in his name. He, he tells us who he is. And in Exodus 34, we find a, a great self-description of who God is, where before Moses, God declares his name. He says, I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Our God, the true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, loves to forgive people, even the most violent of people, even the most vile of people. Uh, This God gives his grace and mercy not only to like sort of bad people, but to people who we can see objectively, richly deserve punishment. And if we're humble enough, we'll understand that that's us. Jonah and Jesus' hard words of mercy the words of sin and coming judgment that we talked about kind of all afternoon, um, these have to remain very hard words in order to give us soft hearts because it's only when we see that our sin also deserves judgment that the good news about Jesus lands. The good news of Jesus is only good news if we understand the bad news of judgment and sin. The bloody cross of Christ uh, was a public display of God's incredible mercy and justice coming together. It displayed just how seriously God takes sin. He takes it very seriously. Sin deserves destruction. Yet at the same time, the cross displays God's incredible mercy to us. Jesus, out of love, takes on our judgment, takes on the punishment that was owed to us. We we sang about it, and here is love. Heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. Friends, this mercy is being offered to you. It's being offered to all of those uh, who aren't in this building, all of our neighbors and our coworkers. This is the kind of God that we serve. He is extending mercy. Receive it. Be transformed by it. Believe God. Be humbled by uh, the, the true story of who you are. Call out to him. Walk in new obedience because Christ has given himself to you to show you God's mercy. So I have one point of application, one way that we can apply this uh, message from Jonah 3 to our, to our hearts. Um, I spoke to a lot of people from the East Coast before we moved here, before Britt and I made the journey from Ottawa to, to Halifax and had a lot of coffee and uh, you know, a lot of lunch meetings with people who were transplanted to you know, Toronto or Ottawa or somewhere in between um, out, of, uh, out of Nova Scotia. And I had coffee with a, a priest who had been uh, transplanted to Ottawa from Cape Breton. And I asked him, what kind of advice would he give me? Um, you know, a young pastor going into a, a culture, into a city that I wasn't very familiar with. How, how, should I, how should I phrase the gospel? Is there a way that I could, you know, uh, express it in a way that would be received by, by modern, enlightened, East Coast Canadians? And this is what he said to me. Give it to them straight. 
Give it to them straight. Preach the hard edges of the cross. Call out sin. Make it clear. Don't apologize for it. Don't be frightened by the reaction that you might get. Uh, Proverbs 27 echoes this. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Christians are indeed always called to speak the truth in love. But I think, uh, this is a temptation of my own heart, maybe it's for you, is we, we, we let um, the, the love part obscure the speaking and the truthing part. God has planted us in Halifax for a reason. We, we exist as Christ Church Halifax for a particular reason. God has given you friends, he's given you neighbors, he's given you coworkers, he's given you family, because he is a God who loves to extend mercy to them. He delights in it. That, that's what he is all about. He has sent his son for this very purpose. And we as a church, collectively, not just individually, it's not all on you, it's on us together to be witnesses to this mercy. And so this is a reminder for us. This is an application for us. Give it to them straight. Be honest. Be truthful. Don't be afraid. Who knows what God might do? Speak the truth. Certainly speak it in love, but give it to them straight. Now, may you experience this transforming mercy of God. May you believe every one of God's words of both his coming justice and his mercy for lost and rebellious people, which are met together in the cross of Christ. May you be humble to your core. May you remove any masks that you're wearing and see yourself where you truly are. May you call out to God in your distress, believing that salvation belongs to the Lord. And may you, through the power of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, live a new life of obedience and courage to him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your hard mercy, for not sparing us from the truth about our sin and the coming judgment, but for speaking it plainly for us to understand so that we can see ourselves rightly see our, our position before you accurately, and then to be in awe and wonder at the life of Christ given for us so that we can be forgiven and brought close. Father, I pray for our church. Pray for all who are listening to these words, uh, wherever they are, that you would help them to believe your word, believe it from the heart, to keep it, no matter the consequences. Father, we ask that your mercy would transform us now and always. We pray that all in your son's name. Amen.